Psalm 90. Psalms is a Greek word that literally means a song sung with a plucked instrument. Evidently, the Hebrews were not picking and grinning, but plucking and grinning. They did, though, enjoy putting their relationship with God to music. The setting for the Psalms range greatly from the Exodus, Israel's deliverance from Egypt, to the exile, Judah's captivity in Babylon. And the 150 Psalms span a period of nearly a thousand years. The Psalms are a portrait of the devotional life of the Hebrew people through the centuries. It's a collection of reflection. It's a wonderful volume. The book of Psalms is actually divided into five books. And there's an interesting theory behind the division. The rabbis related the five books of the Psalms to the first five books of the Bible or the Pentateuch. A casual glance will reveal that the length of these sections of the Psalms are similar in proportion to the length of the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. You'll also find that some of the content has some parallels. Now, the view is just a theory, but I do want to elaborate on it for a second, just for your consideration and just to sort of introduce you to the idea. <clears throat> it's something you can go back and sort of investigate on your own. Psalms 1 through 41, the first section, correspond with Genesis, according to this theory, and they're called the creation psalms. And many of these psalms refer to God's glory within nature, God's dealings with mankind in general. The major author of these psalms is King David. Psalms 42 through 72 shadow the book of Exodus and are called the deliverance psalms. And the major authors of this section are David and the sons of Korah. Psalms 73 through 89 link to Leviticus. And the predominant author in this section is Asaph, who was a Levite and a priest. These psalms are called the sanctuary psalms. Psalms 90 through 106 track the book of Numbers. And these psalms are called the journey psalms. And you remember Numbers records Moses' dealings with the Hebrews as they wandered or journeyed through the desert for 40 years. This section of Psalms, interestingly enough, begins with a song by Moses. And finally, Psalms 107 through 150 correspond with Deuteronomy. They are called the prophetic Psalms, and they are attributed to primarily uh, the Psalms. There are two authors in the section. One is David and the other is a man by the name of Anonymous. It's all an interesting theory, and I encourage you to research it on your own. Psalm 90 is prefaced, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And it would seem that Moses wrote this psalm near the end of his life. Psalm 90 is probably the oldest psalm, and next to Job, one of the oldest portions of Scripture. Psalm 90 begins... Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And the Hebrew phrase that's translated dwelling place literally means den. Now, in most homes, the living room is sort of cold and formal. It's where you seat the guests. But it's the den. That's the room where you can relax. That's the room where the family hangs out. That's the room where you are accepted 
where everybody just lets their hair down. The den is the place where you can be yourself. And I think that's how we should feel around God. Why not? He knows us anyway. (laughs) There's no need for pretense in the presence of God. No need for cover-up. There's no need really to be formal or stiff in God's presence. We need to relax. We need to be real. God loves us and we need to enjoy His grace. We're told here that God is our den in all generations. I like that. Verse 2 speaks of the eternity of God. Moses says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God has no beginning. He has no end. He is eternal. Verse 4 says, A thousand years is to God as a night watch. Literally about four hours. God is eternal. And that means, as we said this morning, that He doesn't just have lots of time, but He exists outside the time domain. God created time. He is the great I Am. God has always been. He will always be. He is always right now. God is eternal. And yet God is also current. In contrast, though, man is here today and gone. Well, today... For verse 6 tells us that man is like the grass that flourishes in the morning, get mowed, mowed down by evening time. And it was because of their unbelief that God mowed down the generation of Hebrews that exited Egypt. Moses says, we have been consumed by your anger. Verse 10 speaks of mankind in general. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years... Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. In 1996, the average life expectancy for a U.S. male was about the same as for a Hebrew male at the time of Moses. 73.9 years. The life expectancy for American females is a little longer, 79.7 years. Moses just rounds it off to 70. And he says, if you're healthy, if you take good care of yourself, you might make it to 80. But but compared to the eternity of God, verse 10 tells us we are all soon cut off. The oldest person on earth, at least a few years ago, was a woman by the name of Jeannie Calmet of Arlay, France. And on her 120th birthday, At her celebration, she was asked the question, what kind of a future do you expect? Miss Calment said, a short one. (laughs) And in doing so, she was speaking for all of us. For life is short. It's soon cut off and we fly away. It reminds me of the older lady who was asked of her plans for the future, she responded, Honey, at my age, I don't even buy my green, I don't even buy green bananas. I'll get it out. (laughs) This is what Moses says in verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Man, your time is short, so make it count. Invest your time wisely. Redeem the time. Make it count for God's kingdom, for His glory. Don't forget, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for God will last. 
It's the brevity of time that makes today so important. Guys, each day could be our last day. Make it count. Hebrew tradition claims that Psalm 91 was also written by Moses. Verse 1 says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And it isn't interesting that fellowship with God is that secret place. You see, communion with God is spiritual. It occurs in the sanctuary of the soul. And this is why physical eyes can't see. This is why the people around you don't understand. This is why the people at work think you're nuts to be talking about a relationship with God because they don't see the secret place. They don't see with spiritual eyes. They don't know. They don't understand the relationship that we can have with God where we too can abide under the shadow of the Almighty and feel and sense His presence in our life. Verse 2 says, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. That last phrase is on your money. In God I will trust. I hope it's in your heart. The rest of Psalm 91 is a wonderful song of God's protection. He will spring the traps, he says. He will shelter us like a mother bird does her chicks. Verse 7 promises, A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Trust in the Lord as your refuge, and you'll have nothing to fear. In verse 11, the psalmist even promises us some angelic intervention. He says, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Remember, though, this was the verse that Satan quoted when he tempted Jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Go ahead, Jesus, prove yourself. Do something spectacular to prove that you're the Messiah. Show off a little. Jesus, though, knew that the verse was being taken out of context. Jesus knew Psalm 91, and he knew that it was a promise to encourage us to do the will of God. God will take care of us if we do. It was not intended to be an excuse to do our own thing and to presume upon God's will. In response, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. You see, Jesus knew the Bible and he knew that verse was being taken out of context. Guys, we need to know God's word. We need to know the context of the scripture so we can discern when it's being abused or twisted or misused. Always remember, a text without a context can be a pretext for evil. Know your Bible. Psalm 92 is entitled, A Song for the Sabbath Day, and it begins, It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. The stillness of the morning, the quietness of the night are both great times to focus our hearts, to really seek the Lord. If you're a night owl, Or if you're an early bird, the psalmist has you covered. Both the morning and the night are good times to seek the Lord. This unknown psalmist marvels in verse 5, O Lord, how great are your works! Your thoughts are very deep. 
I hope that in your spiritual life, you have gotten past the point of requiring to know all of the hows and whys of the way God works in things. I hope you've gotten past that point. Trust me, His ways are higher than you can scale. His thoughts are deeper than you can plunge. I love the statement of one of the early church fathers when he said, I love God because I know Him. But I adore God because I cannot comprehend Him. Think about that. If a finite human like yourself could figure out God, he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? The fact that I can't is one more reason why I worship him with all my heart. Psalm 92 contrasts the wicked with the righteous. Verse 7 says the hatchers of sin are like grass that grows up only to be mowed down. That seems to be a common illustration in these psalms. Verse 12 depicts the man who does what's right as a palm tree and as a cedar tree. Notice the contrast. You know, rather than temporal, rather than here today and gone well today. You know, the righteous man, he's steady, he's steadfast, he lasts. A palm is a picture of beauty and blessing. Every part of the palm is put to use from its bark to its leaves. It's fruitful. The cedars of Lebanon are the pictures of strength and stability. They grow to 120 feet tall. They're 40 feet in circumference. Don't you want to be a fruitful palm? A strong cedar? Or do you want to just be a pile of grass clippings? I like verse 13. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. Have you sunk your roots into the house of God? Have you gotten connected with God's people? Have you gotten involved in God's work? If not, why not? The National Institute for Healthcare Research performed a decade-long study on 2,700 people to discover what social factors lowered their mortality rates. In the end, only one influence proved to be statistically significant. And it was increased church attendance. In other words, becoming a part of a church is not only biblical, but it's healthy. It'll make you live longer. You see, humans were made for community. None of us were designed to be a lone ranger. That's why the world has its clubs and its gangs and its clans. People need a place where they can belong, where they can become a part, where they can connect with other people where they can love and be loved. God's plan to meet this need is through His church. And I challenge you, I encourage you, get planted in the house of the Lord and you will flourish in the courts of our God. Look also at verse 14. The older I get, the more meaningful this verse becomes. They shall still bear fruit in old age, They shall be fresh and flourishing. I hope that's said of me as I get older. I want to stay young at heart. I want my life and my relationship with God to remain fresh and current and active and fruitful. Hey, the Lord has no mandatory retirement. 
I want to keep serving the Lord till the day I die. Remember, Moses didn't start his ministry until he was 80 years old. That's when he started. Why not grow older and bolder at the same time? That's my plan. Psalm 93, along with Psalms 95 through 100, are called the royal psalms or the coronation psalms. They speak of God's throne and His reign over planet earth. Notice the psalm doesn't open, the Lord will reign, but the Lord reigns. For right this second, God is on the throne in heaven. Yes, this world is in revolt. Yes, in the end, God will come back to crush the rebellion. But God is still in charge right this second. This psalm praises God for His majesty, His strength, His eternity. God is stronger, He's mightier than the ocean waves, than the tides, than the floods. And yet most impressive in this psalm is His word and His wisdom. Verse 5 closes the psalm. Your testimonies are very sure. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. Psalm 94 is another one of the imprecatory psalms. The word imprecate means to curse. And nobody was better at fashioning curses than the Jews. Here are a few of some of the very best rabbinical curses. These were devised by the rabbis. May the worms hold a wedding in your belly and invite all their relatives. Here's another. May all your teeth fall out except one so you can have a toothache. That's pretty vicious. May your enemies get cramps in their legs when they dance on your grave. Don't write these down. Some of you are writing these down. What are you going to do with them? May your teeth get angry and chew off your head. May your corns grow higher than Mount Sinai. May your bones be broken as often as the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Hebrew curses can be vile and bitter, but not Psalm 94. For the psalmist's desire is a righteous one. He's upset that the wicked have rebelled against God and they seem to prosper. And he asks God to right the wrongs. He prays in verse 2, Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. And here's the worst part, the proud man. Listen to what he says in verse 7. The Lord does not see. In other words, he thinks he's pulling the wool over God's eyes. He thinks he can sin with impunity, that God doesn't even see what he's doing. How arrogant can he be? I love, though, what the psalmist, how he responds in verse 9. He says, he who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? God hears. God sees. The psalmist had grown tired and his taking a stand against evil. And I want to ask you, how about you tonight? Have you grown tired? Have you grown weary in taking a stand for righteousness and truth? 
You've been standing for Jesus in that classroom. You've become more vocal about your faith at work. And yet you've been mocked. You've been laughed at behind your back. And you're constantly being challenged. Are you a little war-weary tonight? Have you gotten a little tired, a little frustrated? Well, if you have, verses 17 through 19 are for you. They're for the weary warrior. The psalmist says, Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. If I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. In the middle of my, in the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. In other words, outside the storm brews, the proud man, the evildoer launch their assaults, but inwardly, the Lord is comforting him. The Lord is delighting him. And I encourage you, if you'll look inwardly tonight, if you'll ask the Lord to minister to your heart, He'll give you the strength that you need. You can't make it on your own. He says, unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would have shut up. I would have just been silent. But the Lord was His help. And the Lord will be your help if you'll trust in Him. And if you'll let Him comfort you and delight your soul. As Paul said to the Galatians, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap If we do not lose heart, don't lose heart. Hang in there. God is proud of you. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 7 attributes Psalm 95 to David. And it's in two parts. Verses 1 through 7a are worship and verses 7b through 11 are a warning. In other words, it's a psalm of both praise and peril. The psalm begins, Let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. And why? Notice verse 3. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. He goes on. He says, just look at the scope of God's dominion. It extends from the ocean depths to the tallest mountains. Both the sea and the dry land belong to God. Notice Psalm 95. It opens with rejoicing. But by verse 6, the worship deepens. And the mood becomes more hushed. It becomes more reverent. He says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Notice the contrast in verses five and verse seven. The same hands that form the dry land also feed and tend his precious sheep. Isn't that neat? In other words, our mighty creator is also our gentle shepherd who loves us and leads us. The rest of the psalm is a warning not to harden our hearts. The Hebrews who wandered in the wilderness, they made that mistake. Let's not repeat it. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker and our shepherd. Let's be content in his pasture. Psalm 96 is a call to worship. The psalm is divided into three sections. Sing, give, and let. Verses 1 and 2 tell us three times. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. You get the message yet? You need to let it rip. Sing a new song to the Lord. Verses 7 through 8 tells us three times. Give to the Lord. Give to the Lord. Give to the Lord. Giving to the Lord his due 
is just as important a part of our worship as singing His praise. Verse 8 says that when you worship God, don't just open your lips. Man, reach for your hip and pull out that wallet and give to the Lord. Now, when I said sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, everybody got real excited because everybody loves to sing. But then when I said give to the Lord, give to the Lord, give to the Lord, everybody started slumping down in their chairs. But both are a part of our worship. Put your money where your mouth is, man. Bring an offering. Come into his courts, he says. Verse 11 and 12 tell us, Let the heavens rejoice. Let the sea roar. Let the field be joyful. And why? Verse 13 explains, For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. Jesus is coming to redeem all God's creation. Notice the cool progression in this psalm. I like it. He says, Sing to the Lord. Give to the Lord and look for the Lord. Are you doing all three? Romans 8 tells us that all creation groans for redemption. When the Lord returns, He's going to restore everything that sin has touched, including the heavens and the seas and the fields. And that's why all creation should join in the worship of God. As in all the royal psalms, the focus of Psalm 97 is also on the throne of God. And verse 2 tells us, righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. In other words, in the end, every situation will be addressed by God with a verdict that's right and fair. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Psalm 97 teaches us that God is not a person to neglect or to slight Listen to verses 3 through 5. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. We need to fear and reverence the Lord. It reminds me of the new high school teacher. That summer, he had been in an automobile accident and he reported to school the first day with his upper torso in a body cast. Of course, the students didn't realize this because he was wearing a shirt and a tie. On that first day, as classes began, the teacher walked over and he opened the window. It let in a stiff breeze. And suddenly the breeze began to flap his tie back and forth. But it didn't phase the teacher. He simply reached down on his desk and in front of all the students, he took his stapler and he just tacked that tie down three or four times right on his chest. And from that moment on, nobody messed with this new teacher. A guy who staples his tie down to his chest, man, is one tough teacher. And the fear of that teacher was the beginning of wisdom and learning for those students. And doesn't that remind us of a proverb? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. Hey, this should be the result of us reading Psalm 97. God is not a person with which to trifle, 
Don't mess around with God. Respect Him. Reverence Him. Put away your idols. Worship the Lord alone. Fear the Lord. Keep His commandments. Verse 10 tells us, You who love the Lord hate evil. My kids get on to me because we'll be watching television and they'll take the Lord's name in vain and I'll get upset. You know, I'll say something about it. And, oh, Dad, you, you get upset about everything, man. You just get mad at everything. But we're told, you who love the Lord hate evil. If you love God, you'll hate sin. When the angel Gabriel visited Mary to inform her that the Spirit of God had overshadowed her and that she would be the mother of the Messiah, she immediately left Jerusalem to visit or left for Jerusalem to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And when she arrives and finds Elizabeth, Mary expresses the joy of her heart in a song. It's called Mary's Magnificat. And if you read Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, you'll find some amazing parallels with Psalm 98. And perhaps... Mary was meditating on this psalm as she journeyed from Nazareth to Elizabeth's house. The psalm opens with the command to sing to the Lord a new song. God wants fresh, passionate praise, not stale repetition. Even if we're singing a familiar song, we should always sing it with freshness. We should find a new implication in what we're singing. Sing to the Lord a new song, he says, for he has done marvelous things. Hey, God is always doing new things. Therefore, we should be uttering new and fresh songs. One other point in this psalm, passages like verse 8 are figurative. We're told, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together. Obviously, rivers have no hands. But the psalms, remember, are poetry. And being poetry, they employ poetic devices like personifications of nature. You just sort of expect that in the Psalms. Verse 9 tells us once more, for he is coming to judge the earth. Reminds me of the pastor preaching his very first sermon out of seminary. And he had been told by one of his his professors, that if his mind ever froze up during a sermon, that he could just quote a phrase that would kind of give him time to catch up in his mind and give him, jar his mind and help him remember where he was at. And, and one of the suggestions was, you know, one of the last verses of the Bible, Behold, I come quickly. And the professor had said, look, it fits almost anywhere in a sermon. And you can just remember it. And, and if you ever, you know, your brain ever freezes, just... Shout out, Behold, I come quickly. Well, he was preaching away in this sermon and he had one of these brain cramps. And he yells out, Behold, I come quickly. But before long, it happened again. So again, he yelled louder, Behold, I come quickly. Well, it happened a third time. And this time he pounded the pulpit and he kind of lost his balance. And when he did, he yelled, Behold, I come quickly. But then he the pulpit gave way and he tumbled and he kind of fell right out into the front row right in this little old lady's lap. And he gets up and he starts to apologize and he tries to explain what had happened and 
This little old lady just stops him and he says, Don't worry, Sonny. It's not your fault. I should have got out of the way. You warned me three times you were coming. <laughs> hey, you need to get ready. Jesus is coming to judge the earth. Psalm 99 opens. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. There's a Christian sect known as the Quakers who got their name by the trembling and the physical shaking that they would experience when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. When the Lord takes over in our lives, He does intend to shake us up. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. Verse 6 mentions Moses, Aaron, and Samuel as examples of prayer. Verse 8 teaches a profound lesson. It says, you answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. Notice, notice that. God forgave their sins, but He did not eliminate their consequences. Did you catch that? He forgave their sin, but He didn't remove the consequences of those sins. Out on a western ranch, a father had lived with a wild and rambunctious son. And every time the boy got in trouble, the father had gone out to the hitching post out in front of the house and he'd driven a nail into that post. And over the years, that wooden post was filled up with nails. Eventually, the son was charged with a crime and he was thrown into prison. And from his jail cell, he wondered if his dad would ever forgive him. After his release, he returned home. And the first thing that his father did was take him out to that nail post. And to show his forgiveness for his son, one by one, the father pulled those nails out of that post. And oh, the boy just wept with joy at the father's willingness to forgive him. But when all the nails were removed, the father made note that yes, the nails were gone. But that post was still covered with scars. And he reminded his son that the same is true with sin. Yes, God forgives fully. He forgives freely. But our sin still leaves scars that sometimes cannot be eradicated. It's been said God will forgive your sins, but your body won't. Vile and destructive habits can take their toll. And even forgiven sin has its fallout. So beware. Avoid the consequences of sin. Psalm 100 is entitled, Psalm of Thanksgiving. And let me say, the evidence of a true Christian is the attitude of gratitude. If you have tasted the goodness and the grace of God, there will be a gladness in your heart, not a grimness. You'll be thankful and you won't be timid in expressing that thanks. Psalm 100 springs from a thankful heart. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. Understand, there is no such thing as a self-made man. 
There are only two types of people in this world, thankful people who give the credit to God or arrogant people who steal that credit from God. It is not we who have made us, but it's God who has made us. It's God who we are, who we, who is responsible for any success that might come our way. There's an old movie called Shenandoah. Maybe you saw it. Jimmy Stewart played in it. Jimmy plays this Virginia farmer. And he sits down at the table right at the beginning of the movie to say a prayer, the blessing, you know, before the meal. And I was going to read to you what he said, but instead I thought I'd just show you the, the clip from the film. So here's Jimmy Stewart, the movie Shenandoah. And here is the blessing before the meal. And here it is. That's the attitude of a lot of people. They'll say thanks. But deep down in their heart, man, they believe that the credit belongs to them. They've worked dog bone hard for all they've received. But the psalmist has just the opposite attitude. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. He knows he desperately needs God. Any good he's done, anything noble he's become is the byproduct of God's mercies and grace in his life. I think Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10 fit right here. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. The psalmist adds, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And you know why he said that? It's because sheep are notoriously dumb. They need a shepherd to lead them and provide for them. Sheep are always wandering off and getting into trouble. And so are we. Be thankful that God is a faithful shepherd who hunts us down, who brings us home, who loves us. Verse 4 and 5 encourage us. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise Be thankful to Him and bless His name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And His truth endures to all generations. Psalm 101 is also a psalm of David. And it reveals the purity that David desired. In verse 3 he says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I want you to read that again. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Now, I am fairly certain that David lived, at the time he lived, he did not have Internet access. 
Nor did he have cable television or VCR. Nor did he probably ever ever pass a magazine rack. But if he had, I'm still certain that this would be his vow. That he would be committed to this vow. Lord, set nothing. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Jesus said, the lamp of the body is the eye. In other words, what enters through the eye incites the body. It fills the mind. It permeates the heart. Purity begins even before your mind. It begins with your eyes. Why provide your mind with garbage that will stimulate evil thoughts that you'll have to battle in your mind? Why not just cut it off at your eyes? Why not just make a commitment that you're going to set nothing wicked before your eyes? I was announcing for my son's football game yesterday. You didn't know I'm the voice of the South Gwinnett Comets nine-year-old football team. But I was up in the press box and I was doing the, you know, the announcing. And one of the officials was sitting next to me manning the clock. And he turns to me and he makes a statement. He says, you know, he says, uh, I only come to these games to look at the mothers. And he's looking out, the, he's looking out the, the thing, you know, and looking at the ladies as they walk by and everything. I looked at his finger and he had a wedding ring. I said, man, you're a, you're a married guy. He said, yeah, he said, I've been married 17 years, but it doesn't hurt the look. You know, and I says, well, you know, I said, you know, what you do with your eyes? I said, that's important. That's really important. Because what goes on up here between your ears will have a lot to do with what goes on between your legs. It's true. I mean, you've got to cut it off right here at your eyes. You've got to avoid the temptation. You've you've got to keep from giving your mind and your body the stimulation. We live in a very visual age. We live in a time where, where, and especially you guys, because men are visually stimulated. And if you allow yourself, if you indulge yourself, this visual stimulation, man, it'll rot your heart out. It'll get to you. Sin will fester in your heart and in your body and in your mind. That's why you got to cut it off right at your eyes. And that's what the psalmist says. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Did I say that clearly enough? Did I expand on that clearly enough? Do you get the point? Good. also like this Hebrew word here because the word that's translated wicked, it doesn't just speak of things that are evil. It speaks of things that are worthless. You know, some things may not be evil. They're just worthless. You know, they're just, they're just a waste of time. It's a trivial pursuit. It's just a distraction. We need to not even set those things before us. Time, as we said this morning, is a gift from God. Why waste it? We need to be a good steward of our time. We need to use it wisely. Benjamin Franklin said, Do you love life? Then do not squander time, for that's the stuff life is made of. 
So steer clear of both what is wicked and what is worthless. Psalm 102 is not only a poem, but a prophecy. It predicts events happening in Israel today. Psalm 102 is a song from modern times, and it's entitled, A Prayer of the Afflicted When He is Overwhelmed and Pours Out His Complaint Before the Lord. The first 11 verses describe the psalmist's predicament. He's been cast out of the land. He feels abandoned. He's been punished. Israel has tasted God's wrath. And this has been the experience of the Jews for the last 2,000 years. When the national leadership of Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah, God's judgment followed. In 70 AD, the Romans sacked Jerusalem and scattered the Jews among the nations. And they've remained there, scattered, until recent times, until the 20th century. It's been in our lifetime that God has brought back His people Israel to their land and He has reestablished the Israeli nation. This renewed favor is what the psalmist foresees in verse 13. He says, You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come. And I believe God's prophetic time clock restarted with the rebirth of the nation Israel. That the set time for the Lord's return has indeed come. Verse 14 says, For your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. You know, when Jews from all over the world began to return to Palestine over the last century or so, the British who controlled the land offered the Jews other parcels. At one time... They offered the Zionists 6,000 square miles in British East Africa where they could make their nation and establish their state. But the Jews rejected all of these alternatives because they longed for their land, for the stones, he says, for the dust of Judah and Samaria. Only the land of the Bible the land that God had given their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, would do for the Hebrew people. As Theodore Herzl, one of the leading Zionists, put it, there is a land without a people. There is a people without a land. Give the land without a people to the people without a land. And to this day, Jews in Israel take pleasure, as the psalmist said, in their stones and in their dust. Verse 16 makes an incredible statement. For the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. The implication being that when the Lord establishes the Jewish people in Zion or in Jerusalem, at that time he will appear in all his glory. With the rebirth of the nation Israel in May, on May the 15th, 1948, and with the retaking of Jerusalem in June of 1967, the Lord has been building up Zion. And my question is, is, is His return drawing near? For when the Lord builds up Zion, He shall appear in His glory. I'm looking for the coming of Jesus. Verse 18 is also prophetic, but not of Israel. It says... 
This will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Who are the people of praise yet to be created? It can only be me and you, the church of Jesus Christ. And this is what God is doing in these last days. He is creating an entirely new people group, neither Jews or Gentiles, but followers of Jesus Christ. Christians. Do you know you can divide the world into three groups tonight? Jews, Gentiles, and believers in Jesus Christ. I want to be a part of that third group. That's the group that's going to heaven when Jesus comes for His church. The end of Psalm 102 describes how God will outlive the physical universe. We're told the heavens will grow old like a garment, like a cloak, You will change them. Revelation tells us that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. The heavens will change. But in verse 27, the psalmist says of the Lord, You are the same. Everything around you is going to change, but God is immutable. God never changes. Psalm 103 begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. And here is the key to worship. Understand, It's not how long you worship. It's not how well you worship or how well you sing. It's not quantity. It's not duration. Key to worship is intensity. Am I pouring out to God all that is within me? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Real worship reaches deep down inside. It clears out all of my passion and my emotion and presents it before the Lord. If you don't feel a little depleted when you've finished worshiping, then you haven't really worshiped. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Pour it out to the Lord. I love verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. That's why it's good to keep a journal of all the ways that God has worked and answered prayer in your life. In the next verses, David practices what he preaches. He starts listing some of the benefits. He says, Who forgives all our iniquities, who heals all our diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things. That's a pretty good benefit package, wouldn't you say? Don't get tripped up, though, by verse 3. Who heals all your diseases. Understand, God made promises to the nation Israel that He never made to the church. He promised the Jews an immunity from disease. One day when we get to heaven, God will heal our diseases, but not in this lifetime. The Jewish nation was a physical kingdom and therefore many of the blessings were physical. We dwell in a spiritual kingdom. Our healing takes place spiritually in this life. It may take place physically, but sometimes the healings will wait until we get to heaven. Right now, we're as subject to germs as the person next door. If you're a believer in Jesus, verses 10 through 14 should thrill your heart. These verses depict the extent of the forgiveness that we've received through the work of Christ. He says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, 
nor punished us according to our iniquities. This is the doctrine of justification. Even though I've sinned, even though God knows I've sinned, nevertheless, because of what Jesus did for me, God chooses to treat me just as if I'd never sinned. That's how you understand the word justified. He treats me just as if I'd never sinned. I have. That's not how he treats me. He treats me as if I were sinless. Isn't that incredible? He says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Notice he didn't say as far as the north is from the south. Because you can go north on the planet to a point, and then you're going south. But you can go east forever. (laughs) And you're never going west. In other words, God will take away our sin as far as the east is from the west. He'll take it away eternally. He'll wash it away completely. Our sin has been eliminated once and for all, forever and ever, through the work of Jesus Christ. He says, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I think sometimes God expects less out of us than we do out of ourselves. We get so bummed out when we blow it. God knows you're going to blow it. He knows you're but dust. And that's why you should also know that in Christ you're forgiven and that the Lord will be faithful to you. And even when you blow it, He still loves you. He still cares for you. He has forgiven your sin and He wants to continue to work in you to make you into the person He desires. Hey, don't you give up because God hasn't given up on you. Psalm 104 describes God's incredible creation. The psalmist sums up God's marvels Seems to be coming from the junior high direction for some reason. Just turn the tape off, Steve. Cheap amps as guitar players are using. (laughs) You need to buy a new amp, Eddie. Where were we? Psalm 104, right? Okay. It describes God's creation. And the psalmist sums up the marvel of God's creation in verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom... You have made them all. 
to behold the wonders of nature, and then to conclude that they are the result of chance occurrences of accidental circumstances is totally ludicrous. It's for this reason that the British philosopher Malcolm Muggeridge called the theory of evolution one of the stupidest theories of Western life. And I agree. You know, the psalmist makes an amazing statement in verse 25. He says, This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things, both small and great. Now, how did a man living in the 11th century B.C., who had probably only seen the ocean from the shore, he had probably never even been out of port, know that the seas contain innumerable teeming things. Remember, David lived before the days of National Geographic specials and Jacques Cousteau. How did he know this? Well, he was obviously writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verses 27 through 30 describe how all nature depends on God for its survival. In Psalm 104, God is seen as the creator of nature, while in Psalm 105, he is portrayed as the creator of the nation Israel. And both Psalms 105 and 106 provide a history of the Hebrew people. There's sort of history set to music. Verse 4 is a wonderful challenge. We're told, seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face forevermore. But in addition to seeking His face, in verse 5, we're told to remember His works. For one of the ways that God reveals His heart is through His deeds. You need to not only see His face, but you need to also remember the works of His hands. In verse 6, the psalmist begins the history of Israel with the covenant that God made to Abraham and to his descendants. You remember the covenant, I hope. It's strategic to the whole Bible. It includes three promises. God promised to Abraham a chunk of land. He promised to Abraham a nation that would come from his loins or from his descendants. And from that nation salvation would enter the world. And you remember the three S's. Here's how you remember the Abrahamic covenant. Write them down. Sod, seed, salvation. And that's the whole Bible in a nutshell. God promises them a chunk of land. Here's the people that will inhabit it. And through these people, salvation will come to the world. It was all given to Abraham. Psalm 105 tracks Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, then the story of Joseph. Then in verse 26, Moses enters the picture along with the ten plagues. The psalm ends with God's provision in the wilderness. In the land of the Gentiles that the Lord gives to Israel. Verse 45 reminds us that the Lord also gave Israel statutes and laws, which tragically they failed to keep. Other than the last verse... Psalm 105 describes God's treatment of Israel, while Psalm 106 describes Israel's treatment of God. And here's where the scene gets ugly. See, Psalm 105 describes God's faithfulness. Psalm 106 describes Israel's 
unfaithfulness or faithlessness. Verses 6 through 12 describe how the Hebrews rebelled against God at the Red Sea. And yet God delivered them despite their sin. As he says in verse 8, Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. He describes the exodus in rapid fire phrases beginning in verse 11. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. They soon forgot his works. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. They sang his praise. They soon forgot his works. And yet that was the sad story of Israel's history in a nutshell. Over and over, they forgot God's works. No sooner had they sung his praise than they had forgotten his works. Psalm 106 recounts the rebellion against Moses, the golden calf, the unbelief at the border of Canaan, the sins in the wilderness. Even after the next generation entered the land, they failed to obey the Lord fully. They failed to destroy the pagan inhabitants of the land. And in verse 35, we're told they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works and they served their idols. Man, how tragic. And this is why God allowed the Gentiles to oppress his people until it humbled them and caused them to repent. And eventually he had to allow them to be led into captivity. But through it all, God always remembered his covenant to Abraham as he still does to this day. Verse 47 is Israel's prayer, both then and now. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name. And the psalm closes in verse 48. Let's say it together. Praise the Lord. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Encourage our hearts with it, Lord, as we go out into this week to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to redeem the time. Help us to make every moment count. To build up your kingdom. To bring your name glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, you're dismissed.